One scholar of the Hebrew Bible has posited that the Psalms fall into one of three categories, orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Psalms of orientation reflect a place of security with God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalms of disorientation reflect despair. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? And psalms of reorientation reflect surprise at an unplanned positive turn of circumstances. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation, a helpful interpretive lens when praying with the Psalms. But, and there is always a but, these categories don't go far enough for me. They don't go far enough for me because they don't reflect the nuanced movements within the individual Psalms themselves. Psalm 23 which I briefly quoted earlier, is not just about green pastures and serene sheep. There is a moment it takes a dramatic turn from orientation to disorientation. You know the line well. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Even within a psalm of orientation in which the steadiness of life with God is celebrated, there is an acknowledgement of disorientation. This is not unlike the turns and movements of Psalm 116, read just a moment ago. I love the Eternal One who has heard the voice of my supplication. Orientation safety, security, assurance. And then there's the turn. The cords of death entangled me. The grip of the grave took hold of me. I came to grief and sorrow. Disorientation, despair, grief, lament, sorrow. This turn in the psalm is a tacit endorsement of God's desire for us to come to prayer as we are, not as we want to be, as we are. The God who knit us together in our mother's womb is the same God who knows our most intimate feelings and desires and thus is not startled or scandalized by our expressions of disorientation, grief, or pain. Repressing feelings that might feel impolite in prayer is something the, mo the psalmist models as unnecessary. It is not in our honest admission of disorientation that God's, it is in our honest admissions of disorientation that God's mercy can be most intensely experienced. It almost goes without saying that this new season of self-isolation is a psalm of disorientation. Mundane activities like grocery shopping, 
walking, retrieving mail, picking up a meal, and travel have taken on new disorienting shapes. This does not even bring into account the daily inundation of conspiracy theories, false solutions, and armchair epidemiological musings. These times are disorienting. And it is, on, it is not only okay to admit this before God, but we must join the psalmist in saying it aloud. These are disorienting times. And when we say that aloud, when we admit that with our lips, we are joining good company. And numbered in that company are the two disciples making the seven-mile trek between Jerusalem to Emmaus. What is often lost about this story is that it occurs on the same day of Jesus' quiet, almost unnoticed resurrection. While the narrator offers the name of one of the disciples, Cleopas, the other goes unnamed. Some scholars have speculated the second disciple is Mary, Cleopas's wife. American artist Barry Motes painted a compelling contemporary depiction of this scene. Motes' supper at Eumaeus takes place at a rest stop food court, and Christ's blessing is pronounced over KFC combos. In that painting, Mary and Cleopas's disorientation is palpable. Holding paper cups embossed with the head of Colonel Sanders, Mary and Cleopas are shell-shocked. They have just witnessed their friend and teacher, Jesus, be unfairly tried, brutally executed, and placed in a borrowed tomb at dusk on the first Good Friday. They stood still, looking sad, the narrator says. Disorientation. They continue relaying their story to the stranger. And you'll never believe this part, they say. You really won't believe it. I mean, we don't even believe it. But some people we know in Jerusalem have said that this same Jesus whose trial and crucifixion we witnessed, yes, him, people are saying that he's alive. But that just can't be possible. Mary and Cleopas are working with what they've seen and know that Jesus has died tragically and prematurely and they've said their last goodbyes and are trying to pick up the pieces of their shattered dreams and expectations. Isn't that usually how grief works? A loved one dies unexpectedly or not and we are left trying to make sense of not only being able to pick up the phone, of not being able to pick up the phone and hear their voice or visit them over the holidays and hear the same stories they always tell. Yes, that story, the story we find ourselves getting annoyed with, but now miss with our whole heart. We miss the way they laughed, the way they got on our last nerve, the way they smelled. This is grief. This is disorientation. Mary and Cleopas are rightfully shell-shocked. 
We thought he was the one who would redeem Israel, but that won't be the case. Then the stranger, the one they're accompanying on this journey, finally gets a word in. He looks familiar, they think to themselves. Maybe we've seen him in King Supers or at City Park Jazz last summer. Those were nice, weren't they? The sun is quickly setting and we are about to get to the fork in the road for Emmaus and Fort Collins. Should we invite the stranger over for dinner? And as in the Barry Moats painting, they dine at a KFC in a rest stop food court. And as the first biscuit fractures, the first piece of bread breaks, they realize their strain, the stranger is a friend. And not only a friend, but their friend. And just like that, he is gone. And their lingering disorientation is transformed into reorientation. Jesus' listening ear was offered to give them the permission and time and space they needed to air their grief, to admit their frustration with losing their income due to an invisible pandemic, their sorrow over not being able to go on that vacation they planned, their disorientation and being unable to hug loved ones and friends for the foreseeable future the crucified and risen Christ, that shape-shifting presider at the first Eucharist on Easter Day, is a very able companion for the range of human emotion. Seeing as he himself, throughout the course of his life, felt everything from elation to despair, from orientation to disorientation, this capacity to empathize with Mary and Cleopas's very human condition is what makes him the Jesus we can trust. The Jesus who not only hears us, but listens to us in moments of great distress. Every time a guest preacher would take his seat after the sermon, my childhood pastor would stand in the pulpit and say the following. Did not our hearts burn within? Did not our hearts burn within? It wasn't until early adulthood that I realized he was quoting this story and not just spouting off a churchy compliment. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road? While he was opening the scriptures, scriptures to us, breaking bread with us, listening to us, humanizing us. And that is the surprise, the Easter surprise, that even after long seasons of despair and disorientation, the crucified and risen one, is right there with us, stoking the embers of our hearts, 
reorienting us toward the love that brought us to this place and will sustain us late in the midnight hour. And our hearts will burn. They will burn with love. Amen.